0: Well, Exodus chapter 23, and here's the thing, as we come to chapter 23, we find ourselves almost done, not really, but close to being done with a section within the book of Exodus that is kind of nicknamed the book of the covenant. There in chapter 20, verse 22, all the way through chapter 24, is this section known as, or some call, the book of the covenant. And the, the context behind that is this. After God thundered down the Ten Commandments um, from Mount Sinai and rocked the people, the, you know, the, the Israelites, they were so scared, they literally said to Moses, Moses, well, I'm paraphrasing what they said. This is freaking us out. It's too heavy. You go talk to God, tell us what he said, and we'll do it. And so at that point, Moses goes back up the mountain. And by the way, we're going to see some ups and downs. Moses goes up, comes down, goes up, comes down. He goes up the mountain, and he's currently receiving this thing called the Book of the Covenant. And what it is is kind of an elaboration, an interpretation of the Ten Commandments as it would relate to how to apply those Ten Commandments on a day-to-day level. And this really would be almost like a handbook For the elders, as we'll see in chapter 24, the 70 elders and the priests and their sons, this would be kind of their guidebook right off the bat to help guide the people through life and apply those Ten Commandments and the law. And guys, what we've seen is these things are anything but boring and anything but, but, let's see, not applicable. In other words, they're very applicable. That's what I'm trying to say. In these laws, in these regulations, we see kind of the heart of God. God doesn't just arbitrarily set rules. There's a heart behind it. And guys, we've seen that he has a desire and a heart for equity and justice. He cares about how neighbors treat each other. And if you borrow something and you break it, you've you got to replace it. And so it's very practical, very down to earth. You guys tracking with me so far? So we're just continuing that flow, and he's going to kind of tackle some more angles of that. As we get to chapter 23, so as we get to chapter 23, having said that, when you get to verses 1 through 9, this first chunk that God is dealing with is really having to do with righteous judgment. This would be really uh, directed towards those who would be judging, those who are elders, those who are overseers, and in essence what he's declaring is, we'll look at the nooks and crannies in a second. But in essence, what he's declaring is this. Don't let anything get in the way and pervert from making righteous judgment. Don't let things taint justice. Make right judgment calls no matter what. Have you guys ever seen the statue or a picture of Lady Justice, quote unquote? You guys know what I'm talking about? Often it's had in front of a courthouse or something like that, they'll have a statue of a woman blindfolded in her right hand holding a set of scales and in her left hand a sword. And that's really meant to picture that justice is supposed to be blind. Does that make sense? It shouldn't matter money, status, whatever. It's either right or it's wrong. And that's kind of God's heart, that, that these things would be righteously out so let's look at some of what he's got to say to those who would be making judgment calls uh, verses one through three he says this you shall not spread false report you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness so the first thing he says is this don't be a liar <laughs> don't get on stand don't join with people that are giving a false witness. Remember, one of the commandments was, you shall not bear false witness. And you might think to yourself, well, why in the world would somebody lie on stand or whatever? And, and there could be a thousand reasons, but mainly because, hey, if it's going to somehow benefit you, that doesn't matter. You tell the truth. That's, in essence, what he's saying. Verse 2, he says, you shall not fall. Now, let, check this one out. This is, this is huge. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Do you guys catch that? The key word in that verse was many. He says, be careful not to join in with the many and pervert justice. I honestly cannot imagine the pressure that would be on somebody that's in political office right now or a judge in our culture right now because there is so much pressure from culture, so much pressure from the popular opinion and special interest groups that, that just apply all this pressure. And how much courage does it take to make a right judgment going completely against the flow of what's popular, right? I'm so glad that that is not the position I'm in. And we got to pray... I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why God tells us to pray for those who are in office and and who are over us. Because there's got to be so much unseen, behind closed doors pressure to just go with the flow. And and how much easier it would be to just go with the flow and not have a big target on your back, right? But to stand up for what's right. And guys, you can go from political office to judicial to, to even social. What about just in your classroom or at your job site? Just Not going along with what's popular, but going along with what's right. So hard to do at times. And God says, I'm going to honor the person that does that. Be careful not to choose what's popular over what's right, just so that you don't get pressure is kind of the idea. And then he says in verse 3, nor shall you uh, be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. That's interesting. You're going to have some compassionate judge or whatever, and he says just because a person's poor do not give them special treatment. If they're poor, that's fine, but whatever, but you have to do what's right. Don't just give them special treatment because they're poor or afflicted. Then in verses four and five, he says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his, more ox stuff, this is great. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you should laugh and say good riddance. No, just kidding. It says, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying down under its burden. You shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So right in the middle of these like, little pithy things about making right judgment, he says, and by the way, if you see your enemy, and the idea there would be like somebody you're at odds with or in a lawsuit against, somebody that doesn't like you and you don't like them, you know, and you're in some battle in the court or something, and you're just going down the road and you see your enemy, the guy you're currently in a court battle with, and you see his donkey out of the stall, running away, what does he say? Go get it and take it back. If you see his donkey overloaded with a burden for some reason and he, the, the guy's not there and the donkey's just like being crushed under this burden, help it out. What would be the tendency? The tendency in us would be like, well, God is clearly judging my enemy. And what God is declaring, what Jesus specifies later And to me, this is great because it's always there. It's always been there that God's heart is that we what? Love our enemies. That we're not to allow that bitterness and that hatred. Jesus would say this, pray for those who persecute you he said treat others the way that you would like to be treated so just imagine your donkey ran off it'd be like the equivalent of you know you're in some land dispute with some neighbor or something and property thing and there's money on the line and there's property rights on the line whatever and then you just you pass by him and his car's broken down and you have a choice to make do you help him or do you just fly by and salute him on the way b no i'm just kidding his dog runs away you go get his dog, you bring it back. Does that make sense? He, and, he, and he's saying, guys, don't in doing that, you're preventing that hatred in your heart. You know, the verse that came to my mind in this is one that Pastor Steve covered recently in Romans. It says, don't be overcome with evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. But think about that verse for a second. Because I don't think what he's saying by that is overcome the evil that's being coming upon you. Like, okay, this guy's evil, and I'm not going to let him overcome me. I'm going to do something nice for him. That might apply, but I think a better application would be this. No, overcome the evil that is going to creep up in your heart by doing something good. See, it's not the evil so much of your enemy. It's the evil that tends to rise up in you and in me, the evil of revenge or, or the evil of hatred, and to fight against that, if you do something nice for somebody or pray for somebody, it's really hard to hate them. Amen? And so God says, hey, don't do that. Take their dog back if you ran away and help them if their car broke down. Don't be a jerk. That's the loose translation of that. Verse 6, you shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. In other words, uh, if somebody can't afford representation, they they should be provided. We have that in in our in, in our um, legal system. Verse 7. Keep far away from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. It's interesting. He says, stay far away. If you know that the charges that are against this person are false, don't go after it. And don't put to death somebody that's righteous. Don't acquit the wicked or put to death the righteous. And you might think, well, why in the world would you do that? Well, look at the next verse. The verse says, verse 8, And you shall take no bribe, because a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts or literally perverts the cause of those who are in the right. He says, be careful not to take a bribe, because the bribe will all of a sudden, as soon as money is introduced or some kind of favor is introduced, all of a sudden... What was clearly black and white becomes gray in a hurry. And again, you don't have to look far in our culture and other cultures to see that this is true. Amen? I remember I was on a missions trip in Mexico years and years ago. And I'm driving the church van down this dirt road. And I see the lights in the back. The cops pull me over, right? So I pull over. And I'm sitting there waiting and I'm waiting and I look at my rearview mirror and he's motioning me to come to him. There's always something that that should have been the first red flag right there. Why are you telling me to come to you? This isn't the way it's supposed to work. So I get out of the van, I go to his police car, and he's like, Oh, hey, amigo, how are you doing? You know, he's talking to me and he realizes that I'm an American and he's like, What are you doing here? Well, we're helping out at the orphanage right down the road. You know you ran a stop sign. Like, I don't really remember running that stop sign but if you said i ran the stop sign okay so uh do you know what the fine is for running a stop sign do you know what i can charge you And i go no he goes well hold on and he asks his friend and his friend pulls out a piece of paper and he comes up with a number such and such amount of pesos or i could take you to jail too and i was like i didn't know that what do you do for a living i'm a pastor kid you not next question do you get paid to do that? Yeah, yeah, I do. It's like, and there's just this awkward, tense moment. <laughs> well, since you're working with the orphans, I'll let you go your way. You're fine to go like that. So he was just totally trying to get a bribe out of me is my point. But um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. It's pretty gnarly. My friend uh, Michael from, from Oregon, he almost wants to go to jail when he goes to Mexico. He's just like, um, we need a bribe. He's like, No. So one time they just drove him all around Ensenada in a, a police car waiting for him to get her bride. And when they realized he wasn't going to get it, they let him out and he went back to the base. Anyway, all that to say is bribes uh, pervert justice. Verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner, foreigner. He says, you know the heart of sojourner because you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Not going to spend a lot of time on that other than to say that in the previous chapter, a couple of weeks ago when we were in chapter 22, he spent some time on this as well. We'll just kind of suffice it to say that as they're delving out justice, he says, don't oppress the foreigner, the alien, the refugee, because you remember that's what you were in Egypt. And just because they're foreign and just because they don't know the language and they're vulnerable and you don't give them less rights, you treat them equally and you treat them with respect. That's what he was saying to them. Well, now as we get into verse 10, we'll switch gears a little bit. I feel like I'm going really fast. Maybe I'm not. But verse 10 through about verse 19, now he's going to give some laws and some rules as it relates to the Sabbath and as it relates to different festivals. And so we're just going to take a little time on this. Look at verse 10. He says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in it its yield." But on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat and what you leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Verse 12, six days you shall do no work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, that the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So we'll pause there. So the fourth commandment was what? You guys remember? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days God said you could work on the seventh day. By the way, it wasn't a command. You had to work six days. He's saying, but there's six days in which you can work. But on the seventh day that day is set aside to be a Sabbath. And the word Sabbath just means rest. He, er, earlier on in the scriptures, he, t- he kind of uses creation as the model for that, that God s- worked six days in a sense creating, and the seventh day was set aside for rest. Now, if, how many of you guys have read the New Testament or at least the Gospels or portions of the Gospels? Most of us. You know that in Jesus' day, the religious community had so taken that law and these laws and so like twisted them and added burdens to them. They had taken what was meant to be a blessing, this law of the Sabbath, and they had made it this absolutely heavy, undoable religious burden to where people would just like bristle at the idea of the Sabbath because no matter what you did, you were probably breaking it, right? And there's all kinds of examples. We won't get into them tonight, but but this is what I love about, Passages like this. I love the word that. I don't know if you, you caught that a couple times. Hey, you let your land rest for a year. That. You let your body rest one day a week. That. The word that is a reasoning word. And it means this. In order that, to the extent that, you will be able to rest. Does that make sense? God is saying the whole point of the Sabbath was that you would be able to rest, find refreshment. The word refreshment there actually literally means to take a breath, and that's what he wanted to do. Now, look, it's kind of interesting, the land. He said, um, hey, not only are you to only work six days a week and then rest on the seventh, he says the land, you can plow it, you can plant it, you can work it for six years, but on the seventh year, you're to let your field lie fallow that it might rest. And I'm sure that they divided up their, or could have divided up their fields where their entire field wasn't, you know, resting and they could work one half or the other. But he says, look, the land needs to rest. I was really curious about this, so I actually started doing some research on the interweb. And I came across a study done by the University of Arizona In which they were they were studying various things of irrigation and whatnot, but they were also studying the effects of letting the land lie fallow for farming purposes. And just fallow just means to let it rest, like not not work it, and the effects of what it would do to to rest the land for a year. And here's I have all the I was going to read all the stuff. It's kind of boring, but what happened was is they found that in that one year of rest the soil absolutely replenished itself with all the nitrates and carbons and um, microbes and um, organic material and all the things that would be necessary to have nutrients for the plants. If they just kept planting it and planting it, planting and planting it, you basically suck all the nutrients out of the land and then you have to start artificially pumping chemicals back into the dirt to replenish it, right? And that's what people do. And they found that by letting it rest just for one year, All these crazy levels that probably mean stuff to people that are really smart, but all these microbes and nutrients and carbons and nitrates and all this stuff just totally replenished. In fact, when they planted the crop the next year in this study, they found that the crop came back faster, um, bigger, and that the the, the yield was considerably larger. Does that make sense? So by resting... The land actually produced healthier and more fruit. And while I was on the internet, I actually saw did a little search to see if I could find out what would if there was any statistics out there about resting, physical rest, the body. And I came across a study by the uh, this is all leading somewhere. You guys are so patient. The National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, and they did a study some time back, about the benefits of taking one day off during the week. And here's what they found. And this is not exhaustive. I just grabbed some interesting ones. If you take one day off to rest during the week, it, number one, reduces stress. We probably could have guessed that one. Reduces stress. Number two, reduces inflammation and risk of heart disease. You actually have a healthier heart by taking a day off. It boosts your immune system, it boosts your mental clarity, it increases production. There's that idea again. And then they go on to talk about how Germany and France, I don't know if you know this, it might want to make you move there, but Germany and France, if you live there and you work there, it's mandatory for the employers to provide you at least 30 days paid vacation a year. They marvel at Americans like, you don't get we're required to provide zero, and I'm not gonna get into a political mess if we should or shouldn't legislate that, but what I'm saying is, guess what? They're one of the most productive nations in the world. They might be onto something. So all that to say is that one day of rest, they, they found in these companies, or however they did the research, that even though they were grinding an extra day by taking a day off, the production level actually went up, not down. Fascinating. And then lastly, I thought this was interesting, One day off a week also improved short-term memory loss. Not to mention that one day off a week improved short-term memory loss. (laughs) Uh, That was one I was actually waiting to give to you guys. (laughs) Thanks, man. Oh, man. Okay, simple point is this. I'm just taking a long time to get to the point... Guys, it's a simple point, but listen. It's almost like God knew what he was talking about. Because he did. He created the earth in a way that he knew it would would need a day of rest. It would need a year of rest. He created human beings, designed us that we would need a day of rest to replenish. And that if we neglect that time of rest physically, we are going to be unhealthy and less productive. And now you take that principle, guys, don't lose me here, you take that and you apply it into a spiritual realm. And you think about it in these terms because what did Jesus tell us? Or pardon me, what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? In Colossians it says this, listen, that all of the holidays, all of the laws, all of the festivals, and listen, the Sabbaths were all a shadow or a type or a picture of Jesus himself that he is the fulfillment of the sabbath. He's the fulfillment of all these festivals. Listen, put it in these terms. Jesus is our sabbath. We're no longer under the rules and regulations of the law in the new covenant. We're not bound by the Old Testament regulations to have to take Saturday off. Now, I will say this as a little asterisk. I do believe in the principle of the sabbath but not the legal keeping of the Sabbath. In other words, I think that it's obvious that it's healthy for us and that we're doing ourselves a disfavor or disservice rather by not taking a day off. We don't have to. We're not bound by some law to, but I think you're foolish not to. And, and it doesn't mean you go to church because I'll tell you what, if you're a pastor, going to church is not a day off. Monday is. And Monday is the day where your wife's like, I wish you would work on Mondays because Mondays are really bad days for pastors. Anyways, but there's a day that needs to be taken off. But guys, spiritually speaking, listen, Jesus is our rest. And I don't know if I'm explaining this real well. It's clear in my brain, but sometimes from my brain to my mouth, it gets lost. But here's the thing. If we neglect a Sabbath, a day of rest, on a very simple physical realm, we get unhealthy, and less productive. And spiritually speaking, if we neglect the rest and the time with Jesus, our Sabbath, we become spiritually unhealthy and less productive. Does that make sense? Jesus put it this way, and I know that for some of you this is a, a memorized, well known verse, but there may be some who've never heard this. And I want to read to you one of the most wonderful invitations ever given in the Bible by Jesus himself when he says this. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. And listen, you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, come to me, come to me, come to me. Well, how do I do that? Do I do that once a week? Listen. I hope that you do take time once a week to rest and, and be with the Lord. But man, I hope it's once a day. And it's not even limited to once a day, once every hour if you can. We can come to Jesus anytime. But listen, please, there is there a time in your schedule where you do nothing but go and spend time with Jesus to find rest for your soul, to find replenishment, to find breath and life because often what we do, and you know who's really bad at this are those in the ministry. Worship leaders, pastors, Sunday school teachers, deacons, elders. We can be so busy serving the Lord that we sometimes forget to pull back and just be with Jesus and be replenished. Amen? And we've got to do it. I remember when I, one of the first ministries I ever served in. It was called Sunshine Ministries. S-O-N Shine Ministries. It's a play on words, Really? Anyways, um, it was a really tough ministry. I lived on a houseboat at Lake Shasta all summer. And my job on that houseboat was to host youth groups and to drive a brand-new Malibu skier across Lake Shasta and teach them to water ski. For the glory of God, I was suffering. But one of the things that we would do for the youth groups, every youth group is a different youth group each week, And there'd be one day out of the week where we'd say, this is a solo day. What does that mean? We'd take three, four, five hours. I can't remember what it was. I think it was three hours. And we would dock the boat, and we'd let them off and say, you have to be by yourself. You get to be by yourself. No talking to other people. Go be alone with Jesus for three hours. Guys, I was on staff, and I can remember my first solo. It was so hard because I honestly didn't know how to be still. I, didn't, I was done praying in like four minutes and I had like two hours and 56 minutes to go. Is that right? Yeah, good math, thanks. And I just remember sitting there and then I'm like, and this is before cell phones, so I can't check Dodger scores. I mean, I didn't know what to do. But I'll tell you what, by the time that summer was over, that became one of my favorite times. Because my point is this, it doesn't come natural to us to just go and be still and be alone with Jesus. Well, I, I come to church. Listen, coming to church and coming to Jesus are two very different things. And what I want to encourage you guys to do, if you're not already doing it, is find time to be alone with Jesus so that you can spiritually rest, spiritually be replenished. It doesn't have to be three hours, but do you have 30 minutes in the morning? Do you have 30 minutes at night? Do you have an hour? Do you have some time where you can put aside the cell phone? Guys, we we can't even wake up in the morning and be in the Bible and pray without first Seeing how Instagram is going, or and I'm guilty of it too, or Twitter or whatever. We check social media. Guys, I, I hope that the first thing we do is read the Bible and pray before we ever get the social media or let some outward influence, whether it's the news or something else, taint and paint the way that we think through the day. I think that we need to reserve that time to just be replenished so that we know how to navigate the rest of the day. Amen. And we just are living in a culture, and I'm part of it. I'm not saying I'm I'm better or I've arrived. I'm right there with it. It's us, not you guys. Man, we've got to learn to just be still and be quiet and be in the presence. My pastor, Pastor John Corson, used to say this all the time. Either come apart or fall apart. Come apart and be with Jesus or fall apart, and that's your two options. The burnout rate in ministry is unbelievable. You never have to burn out in ministry if you learn this secret to just be alone with Jesus. You never have to burn out as a Sunday school teacher or a worship leader or a pastor if this is the priority of your life. It's just true. Amen? So I kind of camped on that. But the point is, is that Jesus is our rest. He is our rest. God's heart here is that we would not only be physically replenished but spiritually replenished. Well, verse 13, and I'm not going to finish the chapter. I I know that you might be checking your watch, but it's okay because when we get to verse 20, it kind of shifts into a completely different thought, and it'll flow really nice into chapter 24 for next week. But let's look at these last few verses because I think there's there's some great applications in here. So look at verse 13. He says, pay attention to all that I've said to you. and Don't even make a mention of the names of the other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. He's going to give them some instruction about worship. And he says, you know what? I don't even want you to talk about the false gods of Egypt that you just came out of. And when they go into the land of Canaan, they weren't to mention those gods either. We'll talk about that in a second. Look at verse 14. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt and none shall appear before me empty-handed you might want to note that verse 16 you shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field you shall keep the fir- the feast of ingathering at the end of the year and when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. Verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my uh, feast remain until morning. Verse 19, the best of your first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord. Then lastly, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, actually, I just want, let me just do that one real quick just to get it out of the way because it's a weird one. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. How many of you guys have ever traveled to Israel? Some of us. Anybody been to like somewhere where there's a dense population of, of Jewish or Orthodox Jewish people like New York or any places like that? So you know that this, this right here, this law, has been blown up to mean by the rabbi something that I'm not exactly sure it was ever meant to be, but it is what it is. First of all, what does this mean? You're not to boil... Um, a young goat in its mother's milk. There's two little basic takes on this. Number one is that this was a pagan ritual that they would have the milk from a goat, boil the young goat in it, and then like sprinkle that on their fields and in their, in their orchards, and it was supposed to bring fertility. Could be. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was a thing of compassion where God is saying, hey, look, I, yeah, that's kind of that's rude. You know, you take your, the mom's milk and then kill its baby and boil it in its mom's milk. And maybe it was just like this idea of showing compassion. I honestly don't know. So if you want to stump the pastor, there you go. I honestly don't know. But what it's turned into is the kosher laws in Israel and amongst Orthodox where this is why you can't go to downtown Jerusalem and order a cheeseburger. Do you understand what I'm saying? They don't eat dairy and meat in the same meal. They separate. In fact, you have to wait six hours so that it doesn't boil, if you would, in your stomach. The idea of taking meat and dairy, it would be boiling in your stomach, in a sense, and that way you'd be breaking this law. So you have to have a separate set of dishes. Some people have separate dishwashers, one for meat products, one for dairy products. You never mix the two. So do not order, like, a meat lover's pizza from Pizza Hut in Jerusalem. Not that I've ever done that. Anyways, they look at you funny. I was a rookie. Okay. Let's go back to this real quick. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the details of these feasts. I'm just going to suffice it to say this. There was three feasts throughout the year that were mandatory by law for at least all of the males to go to. In fact, jot it down. I'm just going to read to you. This is Deuteronomy 16:16. 16, 16. It's summed up in one verse. Three times a year, your male shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that I will choose. It would be Jerusalem. The feast of unleaded bread, the feast of weeks, the feast of booths, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord that has been upon you to give. So three times a year, by law, at least the males were expected to travel to Jerusalem. Those three feasts, by the way, would be unleavened bread, and that would be, I'd be like a slash Passover. So if you go back, and we're going to go through all these again when we get to Leviticus and later on in Exodus, just about like all the details. But Feast of Unleavened Bread would also be considered Passover. And then the next one was the Feast of Weeks, or I think Harvest he calls it here. Another one would be um, the name for us that we would readily recognize as Pentecost. It was 50 weeks past Passover. And then the last one would be the Feast of Booths. And so each one of these feasts, again, we're not going to delve into all of them in, in, uh, into a detail, but each one of them were all kind of surrounded by the agricultural calendar. They had to do with the time of their harvest and all of that. So they would come and bring the first fruit of their harvest as a time of worship. Also, listen, each one of the feasts, listen, had a commemorative and celebratory element to it. For example... Passover was commemorating their deliverance from Egypt and they were celebrating that, right? Weeks or Pentecost was commemorative of the giving of the law. And so each one had like these commemorative aspects, celebratory aspects, but also just to kind of whet your appetite, they also had an antici- uh, uh, anticipating or what's the word I'm looking for? Anticipatory element to it where they had a prophetic theme to it. For example, the Passover looked back on their deliverance but it looked forward to Jesus who would be the ultimate Passover lamb. So that's just kind of a real general thing but my point for tonight, let me take a breath, I'm getting ahead of myself. My point for tonight is not so much what the feasts were, we'll get to that, but I want us to know how they were to worship at these feasts. And guys, listen, this I think has so much practical stuff for us. I want you to notice, guys, that it was three times a year the males were to go. They were they were they had to go to these things and they had to come and worship. They had to take a week off and go worship. And here's what I love about this: a couple things. Maybe jot this down. I think what God is communicating in this is the priority of worship. The priority of worship. I saw this picture, and I was going to show it. I'm not, I didn't get it all squared away in time, but it was basically a guy launching a boat at a boat launch. You guys ever seen that? Like at Anini, you know, you back your trailer up, you put the boat in the water, right? You pull the, boat, the truck out, and the boat stays in the water. He was launching it the other way around. He literally drove his truck into the water, and the boat's on the upside, and, it, and the caption says, you're doing it wrong. And guys, the reason I I like that, because listen, when it comes to worship, sometimes I feel like we're doing it wrong. And I don't mean just worship singing songs. I'm talking about church. I'm talking about worship as a priority of our lives. I'm bored with church. I don't want to go to church. Church is boring. The sermons don't interest me. Worship's kind of lame. I don't like the songs. Listen, it may not be something wrong with the worship or the worship leader or the style of music. It may not be the pastor or the sermon. It might be you you might be doing it wrong. And I don't mean that to be condemning. I I really mean that to be like, hey, this could change for you. Listen, I think so many people are, are bored with and bailing out of church and everything, but I think it's because they're doing it wrong. You see, worship, what God is communicating here, I believe, was to be a priority. He was saying this, You will go at least three times. You can go all the other ones that you want to. There's a lot more feasts. But for these three, you're going. They're non-negotiable. This is what you will do. And guys, can I just say this right now? Happy is the person who they get this, where they say, church is a non-negotiable in my life. Worship, not in a legalistic way, but we understand, A, because God is worthy of it, and B, because I need it. Church is to be, I believe, and this is maybe an old school thought, maybe unpopular, but I believe that God's business should be our first business. Amen? I'm so thankful. I've said this many times not to embarrass my dad, but he may not even remember this. But I am so grateful that when I was a 13, 14-year-old little know-it-all and was flicking attitude because I had to get up so early, like 9 o'clock to go to church, that my dad in a very sanctified way would say, I don't care, get your butt in the car. And really what he was saying covertly was, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. I don't care how you feel. I don't care if you're not into it. I don't care if it's not your decision at this age, 13 when you know it all. You're going to church because that's what we do as a family. And guys, we're so quick to let church, to let the things of God immediately be the first thing that gets clipped out of our schedule the moment that we get busy. And I've raised three kids, and we've gone through sports and all those things, and I'm not saying you've got to be legalistic, and there was times where we didn't go and we did a tournament or something, but we tried to instill in our kids, look, sports are not your God, ballet's not your God, surfing's not your God, this is not, I don't care what the, this is, The rule, there's always exceptions to the rule. Again, it's not like a legalistic thing, but it's a matter of priority because God deserves it and because it is ultimately good for us and where we need to be. Amen? Well, I'm not into it. Maybe if I was into it, I would go. No, you're, you're thinking wrong. Jesus put it this way. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. We think, well, if my heart was into it, I would go. No, go, and then your heart will be into it. Does that make sense? That is such a key verse to life that Jesus said. It's so backwards. Well, I'm just not into it. Well, who cares? Go and do what you know is right, and then your heart will follow your actions. We so often get it backwards. And then to note that idea of priority, it carries the idea of consistency. We're going to go, we're going to go, and we're going to go. Please hear my heart. Even though I'm excited, I'm not trying to say this in a condemning way. I really am not. I'm just saying I'm passionate because I I see a lack of this. And then notice this. He says, all the males can go. The Ladies, they don't have to go, well, God's a male chauvinist. That's sexism. No, it's not sexism. It's just realism. God was wise. He said, look, there may be a a thing where the women, generally speaking, they may have kids. They may have young ones. They may not be able to make the trek. They may have to keep the home fires burning. They're welcome to come. Yes, bring them. But the guys, you're coming. What I love about that is that God is saying, men, you are to lead the way spiritually for your household. And I, I, I look at our culture, and we have so demasculinized our culture right now, where men are afraid to lead. And can we just say that we, we're to, to live biblically not what the culture says and, and this is not a male chauvinist thing or sexist thing but God is a divine order in marriage and men we are to be the head of our household which does not mean that we're tyrants but it means we are held responsible for the spiritual well-being of our family it does not fall on our wives and too often us guys hide behind the skirt of our wives oh they don't feel like coming to church or whatever then they can stay home but you go you lead the way because you need to be in church If you're going to be the man of God that you want to be, if you're going to be the husband you want to be, if you're going to be the dad you want to be, then you be the one to lead the way. Shame on us if our wives are waking us up on Sunday morning to get us to church. If we're the ones dragging our feet, we should be ashamed of that, guys. The church needs men. Men who will lead their families, who will say, Honey, I understand that you can't come with the kids or whatever, but I'm going to go. I want you to come with me, but I'm going. And by the way, I would say this. There are some times where you have to flip it, and I wish I would have done this more. My wife's not here, so I'm not in too much trouble. But there, there, there were times where I would, I would say, man, the kids have been sick for like 18 weeks in a row, and you're dying on the vine. I'll stay home. You go because you need to get some, some spiritual nutrients, right? But either way, I'm the one leading by example. Amen? Amen. Unpopular in our culture, I really don't care. Guys, the church of God is starving for men who will be men. So there was a priority, and there was to be a leadership by the men. And then lastly, and I know I'm over time, but lastly, notice that God also said, and when you come, come. And by the way, it's a get to, not a got to. He, in essence, was forcing them to take a week off work and go celebrate and have barbecues and hang out with all your friends. I mean, it's not like a bad thing. Go be in my presence. I'm telling you, I'm making a law. I want you to rest, hang out, go have a barbecue, be in my presence. Okay, God, I guess. It's not like church is a punishment, right? But then he says, and guys, when you do come, or ladies, when you do come, don't come empty-handed. That convicts my heart. This is another one of those you're doing it wrong kind of things. I'm not really into church. Well, maybe it's because you're coming empty-handed. What do you mean by that? Well, we're, please don't bring a lamb to church. We're not, we, there's no altars here. Praise God. We're not going to slaughter anything. It's a different time, like different context. But still don't come empty-handed. Hebrews 13:15 says that when we come, we should bring an offering, a sacrifice of praise to the Lord acknowledging him with thanks from our lips. Psalms talk about bringing a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The sacrifices of God are broken in a contrite spirit. Philippians talks about giving of our our finances for the work of the ministry is a sacrifice that's acceptable to God. And when we come, I think so so often we leave empty because we came to get instead of to give. Now, little asterisk. We should come to church with an expectancy that we're going to receive from the Lord. I'm not saying that's not true. But we should also come through those doors ready to give God praise and give God our first and our best. Did you notice that? They were to bring their first fruits and the best of their flock, not your leftovers, not your pocket change, the best. So, whatever that means, the best of your praise, the best of your energy, your thanks, and yes, our finances. Saying to the Lord, This is the first fruits of our finances. And and it says in Deuteronomy, it's all in accordance with how the Lord's blessed you and there's a lot of freedom in that. But may we come and say, Lord, it's all yours. I can't wait to get to church so I can give you praise and give you worship. And I guarantee you come with not a consumer mentality, but a, a giving mentality, you'll actually walk away more full and more blessed than you've ever been. Amen? It's just true. I'll end with this. This is so convicting. I feel like I'm a little bit of a jerk tonight, but I'm saying it to me, okay, not to you guys. I'm saying it to me, and if you want to join with me, that's great. What if everybody in the church came to church like you come to church? What would the church look like? What if everybody worshiped with the same fervor that you worship? What if everybody gave with the same heart that you give, in the same way that you give? What if everybody in the church served the way that you serve? What would the church look like? You hear what I'm saying? And, oh, that stings a little. Good! Let it. Let it. Man, it, would, would there just be passionate praise? with tears, just pray, well, I don't feel it. Well, chuck my feelings, I'm gonna... Lead in with my actions and let my heart follow. But I'm going to praise God. Is that your mentality when you come in? When the basket comes, it's like, man, I'm thank you, Jesus, for the way you blessed me this week. Man, you put some money in there. You walk through the church. Oh, there's stuff to be done: pick up, clean. What? What if everybody that came to church came to church like you come to church? What would the church look like? And I pray that we, I pray that we will grow in this, you guys. That we will, we will come as a matter of priority with passion. And never come empty-handed. And, and, and the great thing is, God is a debtor to no person. You come to give to him, he's going to pour out upon you blessing after blessing. Amen? All right.